0: Welcome to Confessing the Faith, a podcast devoted to discussions concerning Christian doctrine and the Christian life.
1: My name is Mike Tizier and I'm joined again today by Joe Hannity. Hey, Joe. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Good. Good. You know, I was actually thinking we should probably say a word about uh, where Austin went to. We recorded a number of episodes uh, with him at the beginning here, and then he has disappeared, and we, I don't think, have said a word about that. Uh, It's true. We haven't. It's probably a bad thing. He did not get fired. Uh, Here's what it was. We started recording these in the summertime and Austin's a teacher. And, uh, I should make it a rule that you never start anything in the summertime because you have kind of this, like, at least for those of us who are either teachers or married to teachers, you have this unrealistic view of what reality is like, I think during the summer months. So true. And so, (laughs) uh, so that's the case here with Austin. He, um, uh, it started out with us. We were enjoying uh, the back and forth between the three of us. But uh, once the school year started rolling, it became impossible to find a time for all three of us to get together. So now it's just Mike and I. Hopefully, Austin will join us in the future as well as others. So uh, yeah, well, anyways, that'll wanted be to, something we'll look forward to. Wanted to communicate that, I guess. So, to the so Austin, if you're
0: listening to it, listen to this, we miss you.
1: Yeah, we miss you. <laughs> but, all
0: right. We well, remember that we are in the middle of a series on the doctrine of salvation Uh, We're talking about Calvinism and the five points of Calvinism specifically right now. Um, And today we come to the doctrine of limited atonement. And I think uh, it would be good for us to just look back and remember what we have covered over the past few episodes. And um, just so we can kind of remind ourselves. And if you haven't listened to these, please go back and listen to these, maybe even before you keep listening to this one. Um, So we've done, you know, starts off with Calvinism. First things first. Um, introductory remarks addressing common misconceptions that was uh, episode number four Um, episode number five of this podcast was first things first again what is our authority for truth Um, and then episode six first things first God's sovereignty and all things for the glory of God episode seven and this is where we finally started getting into actually the um, the tulip acronym, just not in in, in the order, but yeah. unconditional election, and then the last one we just released was for, on total depravity. So,
1: right, and I, I think it's good to remember that. And really, if you are jumping in, this is probably the worst one to just jump in on, right, in really, my yeah. opinion. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the most controversial. You know, the doctrine of limited atonement we'll talk about it in a moment, uh, but also I think it, it's the hardest one to understand in isolation from the others. So, yeah, please, if you haven't listened to any of the others, go back. Uh, listen to them first and then and then continue on.
0: Especially yeah. those first things first ones. I mean, that's, yeah. uh, that's something I'm glad we did right off the bat. Um,
1: so. Right. You know, it's probably good for me to say a word about why we're doing this, by the way. Yeah. Um, I think I've said it before, but th- there are some who might say, well, all these guys care about is Calvinism. It's not at all true. We're going to talk about a billion other things, Lord willing, in the future. Well, maybe not a billion, but, you know, a, a lot of other things <laughs> in the future. And we have been talking about a lot of other things over the last four and a half years. Um, but two things I think these are important doctrines. We want our people to be well informed concerning them. Also, I know that people continue to have misconceptions concerning us because I hear about the misconceptions all the time yeah, I either yeah. listen to sermons of you know, the other pastors who attack either us or those who are of the reformed tradition um and or just in the you know course of conversation, I realize there are lots of misconceptions, and so you know that, that's what's prompting this. You know our desire for our people to be well informed concerning these doctrines because they do matter. They have an impact upon life, and then also to give an answer to those who would um, either want to know more or those who are more aggressive in their critique, right? And uh, even open a dialogue with them. Right. Like
0: really, this is an invitation, really. to so let's have some conversations about this stuff. And
1: and I think that's the Christianly thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I consider those who disagree with me on this topic brothers and sisters in Christ. And it would be wrong of me to um, not dialogue with them about their viewpoint and and, and to not, you know, enter into just loving conversation. And I think also the same is true for others listening in. You know, we invite you to ask questions at the very least. If you you disagree with us, that's fine, I guess, you know, but at the very least seek to understand what we believe and why we believe it. Exactly. Yeah, that's good. Well, let's get into it. Let's just jump
0: into into this with just a simple question: What does the doctrine of limited atonement teach?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I probably should begin by saying that I think a more helpful title for this doctrine would be the doctrine of particular redemption. Um, Limited atonement. It it works, you know. It actually fits the acronym. So, yeah, right, we need an L in tulip. I, I don't know if that's the reason it was chosen necessarily, but particular redemption. That that phrase communicates really what we're getting at here. That Christ um, came to this earth. He, he's the eternal Son of God. He took on humanity. He took on a human nature as Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ. He came to this earth. Uh, to live in perfect obedience to God. Uh, He was righteous, he was holy, he was pure, and yet he died the death of a sinner in order to pay the penalty for sins of all whom the Father had given to him from eternity past. Um, So the redemption that Christ provided was particular It was precise. It was aimed at something. Jesus came with a mission to accomplish. It was the mission given to him by God the Father from eternity past, and it's the mission that God the Holy Spirit continues to carry out as he draws sinners to himself. And so that's what we're talking about here, particular redemption. Christ, when he went to the cross, he had all who had ever believed in him and all who would ever believe in him in view, he paid for their sins in full. It is finished. That—that's the idea. He didn't come and—it in, 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 it wasn't a sloppy atonement, you, you know, one where he came and did some work, where he at the end was saying to himself, "Well, I hope they finish the job" or something. It was a particular redemption. It was the elect in view. It was all who had ever or who will ever believe in Christ, who were in view, and their sins were paid for in full. Um, he actually took their place on the cross. He was the substitute for them. Uh, That's what we're getting at here. And so the phrase limited atonement is just fine. I I, I don't really shy away from it, honestly. It just kind of has more of a negative connotation to it at first, I think, and and people kind of abuse that. But, of course, if we talk about limited atonement, we're just talking about the atonement, the atoning work of Christ, his shed blood being limited to and for those who had and would believe in him who are the elect right right. Uh, so again you need to go listen to the episode on unconditional election i guess if you're confused about that phrase but that's the idea here yeah yeah is that clear kind of rambled but i think
0: it's good and i think we'll get more obviously into the details here and i think uh you've heard this i'm sure and i know i've heard this many times in regards to this particular part of tulip you know does this does this matter does
1: this doctor matter about limited atonement If I were totally honest, I would have to admit that there was a time, even as a five-point Calvinist, where I thought, you know, it doesn't really matter though. You know, Um, four-point Calvinists, five-point Calvinists are really kind of the same. This is something we can just kind of brush off, you know. Uh, By the way, four-point Calvinists tend to hold to all of the five points except this one, the, the Doctrine of Limited Atonement. And You know, whenever that question is asked, does this doctrine matter? There's always two ways of answering it, really. Like, what do you mean by matter? I think we've done this before. Like, is it necessary for salvation? That's not what I'm talking about here, right? Right. Um, But it does matter. I mean, just think about it. What are we talking about? We're talking about the atonement. If anything is more central to the Christian faith, I can't think of it. You know, we're talking about the atoning work of Christ, the work of Christ on the cross, and when we're talking about limited atonement, we're actually dealing with the question, what did Jesus do there? Mm-hmm. What did he accomplish? What did he accomplish? And so your view on the atonement, um, on, on this topic of limited or unlimited atonement, really just reveals a whole lot concerning how you think about that question. What did Jesus do on the cross? For whom did Christ die? Uh, what did he mean when he said, it is finished? You know, I mean, that's if you really want to burrow down here that's a pretty massively important concept i think yeah so some say no uh i kind of get it i've been there but i think ultimately um it matters because it's it's the, the 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 atonement that's in view and this is a massively important doctrine here um i guess the question is this what did christ do on the cross there've been a number of of, of views Of the atonement throughout the ages. Um, Theologians uh, have terminology for all of this that I won't use, but some, I guess, view Christ as our example. He went to the cross as our example of love, supreme love. Um, Went to the cross to give us an example of what it looks like to suffer before God and, and to submit to God's will. There's some truth to that, but I hope we would all want to say that no, Christ was more than just an example to us on the cross. Right. Um, there are others who, when they think of the work that Christ did on the cross, they think that he made salvation possible for all. Mm. Okay? And that that view takes on different forms. Okay? If, if Here would be my critique. If you hold to an unlimited view of the atonement, you have to confess this view that I just stated in some way that in some way Christ has merely made salvation possible for all, but there's something left to be done. Right. Okay. And there has to be, otherwise this would be universalism. It would be, or or, yeah, yeah, it would be universalism. And, and those who hold to unlimited atonement aren't, aren't universalists. No, No. Mm -hmm. but you'd have to hold to this second view in one way or another, you know, if if you hold to unlimited atonement, I think Uh, the third option is that he really saved. He really provided salvation. And that's the view that I hold to. I, 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 I believe that Christ um, was the substitute for sinners, that he paid a real price so that it was really finished and that's so that salvation was earned. It was fully earned um, by him on the cross. I I grew up under a pastor who would say this all the time, right? Um, Christ Jesus took my place on the cross. He paid for my sins, and then he held to an unlimited view of the atonement. And I'm thinking, how, how can that? So, so you're saying that Christ Jesus took everyone's place, that he paid for everyone's sins, it is finished? There's an inconsistency there, I think. Because if he really did that for everyone, and if he was the penal substitute... Right for, for everyone on the planet, then everyone's sins are paid for. Everyone's sins are forgiven. How then are they paying for their sins all over again themselves because they failed to believe in Christ or something like right, that? I think it's a right. very inconsistent view and a, and a dangerous one when it works itself out fully. Even though I don't think most have thought it through to this depth. You know? I, I think that's the key. That's the that's the thing right there. Well, why do you
0: think? Um, why do you think it's it's such a Like why, why do people struggle with this one so much? You know, the, uh, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, I mean, it's interesting to me because it it, we have this, like, let's go back and this kind of takes us back to, um, unconditional election, right? Mm, Right. So it has to be unlimited in its effectiveness because otherwise we're, we're by some merit of our own, we're getting salvation, whether or not it's small or whatever it is, we have to, you know. Um, do something yeah, yeah add yeah. to it and it it just doesn't match up like it, it, you know with with what scripture teaches us about how how God loves us and how God has redeemed us yeah so it's
1: it's an interesting i don't know it's interesting to me why why does it bother people so much I, there's probably a thousand answers for that honestly i think a lot of it just hap- it, um, has to do with the way we've been brought up and the language that we use to talk about the death of christ you know it's so common for us to emphasize this idea that Jesus died for everyone, mm-hmm. you know. And we we use that in our in our Christian talk all the time. Jesus died for everyone. Jesus died for all. Jesus, you know, we in our evangelism perhaps maybe even we've said, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus died for you, right? right? But we perhaps have failed to ask the question, do the scriptures ever speak in that way? Right. Like go read the Gospel of Acts, which is a, the record of the Acts of the early church, and, and pay attention to how... The early church preached the gospel. Did they preach the gospel using these universal terms that we so commonly use today? You know, and it, it, in a way, it's just a little bit different from the way that I would preach it. You know, I'd be a little more nuanced in language, so it's even hard to catch, you know. But those little things make a big difference over time to where people develop these thoughts in their mind, you know. And and, and if you're brought up in a tradition uh, that, that speaks in this way or that outright teaches uh, universal atonement, it's a hard thing to go back and and relearn, you know. Um, but but this is really what we're getting at. Ultimately, we're asking, or again, what 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 did Christ accomplish on the cross? Did did he come to save a particular people given to him by the Father from eternity past, and to save them fully, to to, to earn their salvation in full, or did he come to somehow? provide atonement for the sins of the world leaving that work in some fashion left undone you know unless you are a true universalist you have to admit and you hold to um unlimited atonement you you'd have to you'd have to admit that in some way he atoned for sin but yet left the work undone now salvation is no longer god's thing that he has done or is is doing but it is something left to be finished by us namely through our exercise of faith or something mm-hmm. you know or, yeah. or for through whatever means people um list after that the, the most helpful illustration i've heard of this and i don't know who it originates with i, I think i've heard it um, attributed to spurgeon but i think everything just gets attributed to spurgeon after a while I don't, <laughs> he's like the most quoted guy ever uh, I, I like spurgeon he's good there's other good guys too um, but I heard this illustration. It's the illustration of a river and bridges, right? Imagine this great river, you know, that you want to cross. Uh, maybe that river re- represents our separation uh, from God because of our sin. But then imagine two types of bridges. There's there's one type of bridge that's very narrow, but it spans the whole river. You know, it, it'll take you across if you walk upon it, but it's narrow. Um, there's another bridge that's very, very, very wide. You know, so wide that it can accommodate everyone in the city, let's say, or everybody on the planet. You know, it's just a very wide bridge, but it only takes you halfway across the river. You know, which kind of bridge would you prefer, really? And, and the point being made by that illustration is that, ironically, the person who holds to an unlimited view of the atonement actually holds to a limited view of the atonement in another respect. Mm -hmm. For them, the atonement is unlimited in regard to scope. It's for the whole world, all people who have ever lived without exception. Unlimited in regard to scope, but limited in regard to effect. Limited in regard to its efficacy. What Christ has done is he has merely made salvation possible for all. He has not saved to the uttermost. Um. And again, ironically, the person who holds to a limited view of the atonement—that is, limited in regard to scope, not for all who have ever lived without exception, but for those given to the Son by the Father in eternity past—they ironically hold to an unlimited view of the atonement in regard to its efficacy. It, Jesus got the job done. It is finished. Is is kind of the point that we're trying to make here. I think it's. That view, the second one that I just expressed that is the that is the biblical view, the consistent view, as we consider the scriptures it's interesting i've heard a a
0: similar illustration, and I just remember that this right now, but uh, you're standing in a room and you can't reach the ceiling and the ceiling is is what you need to reach in order to be saved let's say uh-huh. and Christ provides the latter but you have to climb the ladder. That's the illustration I've heard at some point, and I just remember that right now. But it's an interesting. Uh,
1: you know, thing. well, you, you bring that up, okay, and I don't have it in the notes here to even talk about this. I think one of the things, this was dealt with in the common misconceptions section, I, I think, but I think sometimes what people hear us saying as Calvinists is that, well, we don't do anything. Right. That's not what we're saying. We ha- We do right. have to... We do have to exercise yeah. real faith, <laughs> and we have to believe, and we have to persevere, and we 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 are to uh, walk by the Spirit. You know, we we are to repent. These are all real things that we do. But what we're saying is that the Scriptures reveal something more. That is that even these things that we do, really from the heart, with the whole person engaged, even these things that we do are. Gifts from God. They're by His grace. Right. He He graciously enables us to repent and to believe and to persevere. And He in fact preserves us. You know, this, right. you, you get what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. So I mean yeah, yeah, that that there's also sorts of illustrations out there. We just have to think about these things thoroughly, though, I think. And and again, I, I would hope that uh, Christians who tend to disagree with us would take the time to get answers from us concerning, well, so what do you think about this? Because this isn't lining up for me. How do you deal with it? You know, and Calvinists throughout the ages have dealt with these things, I think, in a very thoroughly biblical way. Yeah. yeah. Well, we kind of touched on this, but, but
0: you know, what do what do the scriptures teach in regards to, you know, Christ dying for all people without exception? Do they teach? Do they ever speak of Christ dying for all people without exception? ever
1: say that well i do want people to understand that if there were one verse in the bible that taught that jesus has died for all peoples without exception every person on the planet who has ever lived and who will ever live if there was one verse that taught that we we would believe it as as christians we would be obligated to believe that right Mm um so I'm very concerned to know what the word says here. It, the word is our authority tr- for truth, but I do not believe there is one single verse in the whole Bible which teaches that Christ has died; He has atoned for the sins of every single person on the planet without exception. You know,
0: I think the first thing people would bring up is this. You know, well, what about the passages that speak about Christ dying for the world? Because a lot of people would interpret the right.
1: world to mean right, right. Yeah, <laughs> and, and how many pastors are out there who? we'll just repeat the word world over and over and over again in opposition to this view. It says world, it says world, it says world. I, I know it says world. <laughs> you know, what does that mean in its context? What is the, what? what is the point being made? For example, in John, we're in the middle of a sermon series in John, uh, the gospel perfect, of John. Perfect. <laughs> you know, and it's, so this is fresh on my mind. Um, the word world is used often in John as we know. So, John one twenty nine. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." You know, and we could sit there and say the word "world" until until we're blue in the face, right? (laughs) World, world, world. What does it mean in John? So, I just encourage people to do a careful word study of the usage of the word world in, in John's gospel. And what you'll see is that it's not emphasizing every single person on the planet without exception, every person who has lived and ever will live, but it's communicating this concept that Jesus came as the Savior, not just for the Jewish people, but for all the peoples of the earth. And beyond that, the word world has, has moral implications too. Uh, in in John's gospel, that the people for whom Christ came to die were not righteous people, but they were sinful people. They were people living in darkness. That is the characteristic of this world in John's gospel. So it's not just the Jewish people. Christ is not just the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of um, the Gentiles as well. I mean, read your New Testaments. If that is not a huge theme throughout the New Testament, I don't know what it is, you know? Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: that Christ is the Savior of the world. So yes, you can, I suppose, cram meaning into that word, which is to say every person who has ever lived and whoever will live without exception, or you can take the word as it is used in John's gospel very consistently, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. I love that verse. I think I probably quote that verse as much or more than any other when i'm preaching i conclude sermons with that verse all the time because it's just such a wonderful uh, wonderful summary of the gospel you know it's a great way to conclude a sermon i think just this this declaration that there is life in the son right who came being motivated by god's love mm-hmm. for the world now what should surprise us about this it's that god loved the world this fallen place that is in darkness and is in rebellion against him. That's what should surprise us about this verse. I mean, John three sixteen. okay, just the only thing you'd have to do is really read the next two verses to see that the Arminians' definition of world doesn't fit here in this context, I think. Uh, this this universal view d- doesn't really fit. Not, not all who hold to an unlimited view of the atonement are Arminians. I get that. I didn't mean to imply that, but... You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have ever or or eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Okay, so if – the easiest thing you could do is just to define the term in the way that you understand it, right? Right? So if by world you understand for God so loved every single person on the planet without exception, then just take that sentence and put it in the place of the word world everywhere it is used in this brief passage here. For God so loved every person who has ever lived without exception that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into every single person who ever lives without exception to condemn every single person who ever lives without exception, but that in order that every person who has ever lived without exception might be saved through him. It, it, really, is that what we're saying here? I don't know if you can follow that you know, as you're just kind of listening to me, but no, the the, the meaning here is that that, that God loved the world, Jews and Gentiles, fallen people, sinful people. It is into this world that the Son came, right? Um, in order, not, not to condemn the first time, by the way. He did not come to condemn the world at his first coming. That will, that will be at his second coming, uh, mind you. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Mm-hmm. So again, we're kind of... We're kind of pushed to, to choose. I think, um, is this universalism that we're talking about here? Exactly. That's yeah. That's, you know, or or is, or is there some other thought being communicated? Um, and, and of course, our view is that the the thing that is consistently being communicated in the entire New Testament, and especially in John's Gospel, is that this is the astounding thing that God the Father has loved sinful people as we are, not just from amongst the Jews, but from all the peoples of the earth. Right from right. all the peoples of the earth. It's a, it's a very consistent way of approaching this, mm-hmm. um, this word.
0: Um, what about, I mean, this is one that I've heard a ton and this is one I, I struggled with too at, at some point, but, uh, what about the passages that speak about Christ wishing that all men come to repentance?
1: Yeah. You know, um, I've heard this time and again, well, the Arminians have their verses and the Calvinists have theirs. Right? Yep. It's like, no. (laughs) If that were true, then, I mean, to be quite honest, the scriptures would contradict themselves. Because true Arminians and true Calvinists are saying contradictory things. Mm -hmm. And if Arminians have their verses and Calvinists have theirs that are fully supportive of their view, then the scriptures would contradict themselves. Um, Instead, I think it is important to see that We have to approach these texts and we have to interpret them in light of the immediate context. Also, we have to employ good hermeneutical principles to where we interpret them in the light of God's revelation in its entirety, right? Mm -hmm. So if the scriptures have made it clear, for example, that uh, God the Father's purpose was to redeem a particular people unto himself go back and listen to the unconditional election episode again if you have not done so and there are other passages that seem to say that god is willing or wishing or you know that all would come to repentance and god is contradicting himself is he not if he has predestined some for salvation but now he is sitting here wringing his hands up in heaven going oh i hope they all believe then we have a problem right um, instead, I think it is appropriate just to approach these passages using good interpretive principles, pay attention to the immediate context, also interpret them in the light of clearer portions of Revelation, you know, other portions of the Holy Scripture. So I've heard it also that God wants all to come to repentance. Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The simple question I would ask is to whom is Peter writing? Is this an evangelistic letter that is going out to non-believers? It's clearly a letter that is being written to Christians. And I think the point of the passage is this, that the reason Christ has not yet returned. Some say, well, he's slow. No, he's not slow. He's patient toward you, Christians. And the delay that we see between Christ's first and second coming it's not because God is is lost or something and has not found his way, but it's because he's leaving room for the repentance of the elect to come to repentance that that that's the that's the purpose here of his delay the other famous passage in first Timothy two um, uses this language that um, God. Our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, um, I've also heard preachers do this all the time. All means all. All means all. All means all. God desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. We have to interpret all in the context of the passage. Uh, that's the point that needs to be made. All does not mean all in a universal sense. Always, it depends upon what you're talking about. I've used this illustration before. If I were throwing a a party or something, you know, <clears throat> and know, I, I wanted to invite the church, everyone in the church to the party, and I stood up on a Sunday morning and I said, "Hey, my wife and I are having a party next Friday night. We're going to serve dinner, and and everyone is invited." You know. Does everyone mean everyone? Everyone means everyone. Everyone means everyone. It's like, no. (laughs) Everyone means everyone in that context, in that room. The church is invited. You're all invited, is what we're saying here. So all means all, but the context limits it. So 1 Timothy 2, here's how the passage begins. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And this is defined here. For kings and who all who are in high positions that we may to, may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth there, there's this idea here that we are being urged to pray for. All people, all types of people, even kings, even different the kings in different positions places, lower places, all kinds yeah, even those who are perse- persecuting you, you know so there, there is this tendency amongst people, okay, we have to acknowledge this that we begin to isolate ourselves and we start to you know pray for those who are like us, right and we and we evangelize those who are like us, and I think what first Timothy two is doing is emphasizing this that God has brought salvation not just to the Jews, not just to the poor, not just to you know a certain uh, demographic of society, but he's brought all salvation to all people and his desire is that all people would be saved. If we're here saying that God is up in heaven wringing his hands wishing that everyone would be saved, that opens up so many other problems in my mind. What kind of God is this then whose purposes are so frustrated, right? Because I think we would all have to admit that not all Again, unless we're universalists, not all are saved in the end. And now God Almighty's plans have been thwarted, and he is disappointed in the end because he so badly wished. I mean, yeah. my goodness. You know, that to me that's so problematic and so contrary to what is so clear in the scriptures concerning mm-hmm. our God, that he is king of kings and lord of lords, and there is nothing that frustrates his purposes.
0: Yeah. Well, here's the, the flip side question to the question I asked earlier. Um, do the scriptures ever speak of Christ dying for a particular people?
1: My response would be everywhere. Just constantly in the New yeah. Testament. I think it's so, it's so common that we miss it. Um, we, we have to remember, l- like, when we're reading the New Testament scriptures, there's so many references to the fact that Christ has died for us. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has given us everything we need to live uh, um, in godliness and provide us all things. You know, there's all, all these references to us, 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 we, you know, kind of language. Who are these letters written to? It, it's an apostle, right, writing to whom? The world? Us? You know, mm-hmm. me, an apostle of Christ and you, everyone on the planet. No, these, it just permeates these letters, you know, the, the the emphasis upon what Christ has done for us, but it is us, you know, me, an apostle, Paul writing to you, the church at Corinth or, you know, so we have to take care, I think, to notice this. Also, there are examples, plenty of examples of Christ's death or the atoning work of Christ. Um, There are references to this work as being for a particular people. So Matthew one twenty one says that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his His people people. from their sins. Okay, so so there is a – there's something particular about that. He's going to save his people from their sins. Not all people, but his people. Uh, Matthew twenty twenty eight. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ran- as a ransom for many. I mean, that's significant. He did not come to give His life as a ransom for all, but for many, which is less than all. Um, again, Matthew twenty six twenty eight. For this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out again for for many for the forgiveness of sins. John ten eleven. We'll come back to John, I think, before we're done with this episode, but. But here is what Jesus says: I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's particular, and if you know anything about John's Gospel or anything about the way that the scriptures in the New Testament use or and old use the language of sheep, it's in distinction from um, in John's Gospel the sheep that uh, that are not of Christ's fold. You know that that do not belong to Him. You know, uh, there's also other imagery used throughout the New Testament about the difference between sheep and goats, of course, but uh, staying consistent with John here. So, so who does the good shepherd lay down his life for? Again, this is atonement language. He lays down his life. The very particular. He's talking about his death, his atoning work. He lays down his life for the sheep. Um, Acts twenty twenty eight. Exhorted here. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. So it's a message here to the elders of churches there to, to um, take care of themselves, pay special attention to themselves, uh, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So what did God obtain? Church of God. Through, through the through the blood of Christ. It, it's the church that was obtained. It was the church that was purchased. Um, Romans eight thirty two through 34. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So there's an example of he gave him up for us all. Who is the us all referring to here? Is it to to Paul the apostle and to the whole world, or no? It's to Paul the apostle and, and the, the church, church in, in particular, the yeah. church in Rome. But I mean, <laughs> right. Um, uh, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn Christ. Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us still. So it's it's particular. The the language of election is here. It's in view. It is Christ who has gave himself up. Again, that is atonement language. It's referring to his death um, for us all. Um, And then, just for example, Revelation 5, 9 and they sing a new song, saying, "Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood." What, what did you do with your blood, Jesus? You know, what did you do with your blood? You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Hmm. So go back to our earlier conversation about John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. I think Revelation five nine is a wonderful verse which adds more clarity as to what is meant there god so loved the world every tribe and language and people and nation and it is a people who have been ransomed for god from the world from every tribe and language and people and nation by the way john wrote john who wrote revelation john John. wrote (laughs) revelation (laughs) you get what i'm saying here i mean so uh, it's totally different literature of course one uh an epistle, but apocalyptic literature, the other uh, gospel, right? But it's the same author, you know, and and um, these thoughts are connected, obviously. So yes, I think um, in no place um, do the scriptures ever speak of Christ atoning for the sins of all people without exception, every person who's ever lived. And I, I just want to make this clear: atonement language is not used. In reference to all people. Okay, so read your New Testaments, read your Bibles, and, and try to find it. You know, I think one passage that I need to deal with at some point. And I know I don't even have close to the uh, enough time to do it here. Is Second Peter two one? Um, you're like, why are you even bringing this up, then, Joe? It'd be much better to just <laughs> leave it alone. <clears throat> this passage in Second Peter two one. Is a difficult one in, in my mind, but I've, I've worked on it hard, and I've, I've come to some conclusions about it that I'd like to. I'd like to deal with at some point. Maybe we could take just an episode and, and come back to some of these yeah. so-called Arminian verses. Right? <laughs> I don't think there's such thing. Um, but <clears throat> I'm going to read it because this, is, honestly, Mike. Like I'm okay. I'm just going to be transparent about this. One of the things that irritates me more than anything is when I hear people. Confronting us and our view of things, but they don't do justice to our opinion about it. You know, you right. know what I mean. They misrepresent. Yeah. They leave so many things out that bothers me. So I'm not going to do that here. But Second Peter two one. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. I'll pause right there. Do these sound like believers or non-believers? You know, are, <laughs> yeah. they sound like non-believers, right? Yeah. These are heretics have snuck in amongst the church, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And so many have recognized this and, and they said, listen, these seem to definitely be non-believers and yet we're told that the master has bought them, right? Mm-hmm. And they say yeah. that's, that's atonement language there. I think it's better to see that the... the Term "master" here is not referring to Christ as Savior, and this is not atonement language. As if these have been purchased by the blood of Christ, their sins having been atoned for. But that Christ, through His life, death, and resurrection, is is master not just of the church but of all things. He is He has been exalted and. In- above all powers above all principalities and so there is this sense in which through the death of christ he has been exalted to that place in his master even over the non-believer not in a salvific sense not in a saving sense but as sovereign lord hmm. that's my 30 second explanation of what i think is going on there in second peter 2 i'll probably you know what i'll do remind me mike i'll put a little link to an article in the in the show notes um dealing with second Peter two, it's a difficult text to be quite honest with you, not only for those who hold to limited atonement, but even for those who hold to unlimited atonement, there, there's all sorts of things going on here sure. that you have to work hard on if you're to, you know, be consistent with it here.
0: And again, the reason, the reason you're doing this right now, for example, that explanation is that we have to take in the entirety of scripture when we deal with these kind of things, right. we can't just take one verse and say, well, this is what it says. So that means all these other verses, mm-hmm you know it's you have to try to interpret it in in light of the rest of scripture right and, and there, so that's
1: that's the point and, and can we just be honest with ourselves here there there is temptation people have this temptation if they're devoted to a particular theological construct there is temptation to take verses and to twist them right sure. that's a matter of integrity really you know are are we really coming to the scripture saying i just want to know what they say or are we coming to the scripture saying i'm going to make them say what i want them to say There's a big difference between the two. It's a matter of integrity, but there are some scriptures that are just – they force us to really think. They're difficult because um, they're written in a different time into people who weren't maybe wrestling with the same categories that we're wrestling with, and so we Mm -hmm. have to back up from them and to work hard at them. And I I mean I'm going to stand before the Lord someday, and I want to be – be able to stand above reproach in this regard as a minister of the gospel. That I've done my best, you know, to yeah. really come to the terms with what the scriptures teach. But I, I would still, at the, at the end of it, I, I would say that there there are no passages that speak of Christ dying for all people without exception. Um, no atonement language used mm-hmm. in reference to that. But there are plenty of scriptures that speak of Christ dying for a particular people in very explicit and clear. Right, clear terms. I think terms. that one that summarizes so well to me
0: when we were reading them is Matthew twenty six twenty eight, because it summarize is also summarizing uh, the unlimited effectiveness, but the scope being limited to, mm. like you know the which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So it's yeah. you know it's poured out for a specific many. It's not right. all, not not every person ever lived or ever lived without exception, but you know and it accomplishes it accomplishes the forgiveness of sins not in so. order to
1: make them savable right, right or to make salvation right. possible if they would only cooperate right but for the forgiveness of sins i agree it's powerful yeah. i keep coming back to the john 10:11 for i am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep mm-hmm. it it's mm-hmm. just and people love to go to john 3:16 to support yeah so yeah. for me too it's like well yeah let's just look at john then you know there's so many verses to talk about why don't yeah let's just restrict ourselves to the gospel of john for the sake of time and see what the entirety of john says let's go to john 3 uh, let's go to john 6 let's go to john 10 and eventually let's go also to john uh, 17 which actually we will before we conclude but um yeah. yeah that's good yeah all right
0: well there are some because this is you know such a controversial doctrine in this, or yeah, doctrine in this doctrine. Um, You know, there are some people who claim to be four point Calvinists, as as you mentioned before. Um, So what do we, what do we think of this? What does that mean?
1: I guess, um, well, what does it mean? Uh, There are some who, who say, well, I'm a Calvinist, but only a four point Calvinist. And that means they hold to total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints. Uh, two of those two we haven't got yeah. uh, to yet. So it's a little out of order, in, I guess, in, a re, in some regards. But, I, you know, four-point Calvinists say we, we hold to that, but we deny limited atonement. Um, what, what are we to think of that? I don't know. Yeah, there's there's well there's a lot of well-intended people out there, you know, and I yeah. know them. I'm friends with them. I love them. You know, they, they just can't square with the limited atonement thing for for one reason or another. There there are some who have like it's like an honest objection to limited atonement, honest and from the heart, and and it's um, based upon their exegesis of the text. It's based upon their interpretation of scripture. I I, I respect that to. To a degree, you know what I'm saying. It's like, okay, you're being motivated not by something else, but you're being motivated by the Word of God. This is the way you see it, and I, I can respect that. I think there are some, and I've had experience with this, and I don't know how many there are in the world, right? But I think there are some who, who, who want to play both sides, though. You know, and for them, you know, I'm a Calvinist because they want to appease the Calvinists, but I'm not a five point Calvinist. I'm a Two point five point Calvinist, or you know, it's like what is what is that even? That that bothers me a bit. It's like that we should just we should have convictions about these things. We should come to the scriptures honestly. You know, I I, w- I would critique the four point Calvinist though. Obviously, I, I'm not one. I disagree with it, and I would critique it on this point. It seems to me to be a very inconsistent um, theological system. Okay. It seems more biblical than the Arminian position because at least you got four of the five points, right? But it almost seems less consistent than the Arminian position. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, In in terms of a theological system is concerned. Um, and, And what I mean by that is you've already confessed unconditional election and total depravity irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints you now now you have this strange thing going on with the atonement it's it's out of sync with the rest of it you know um and that seems that seems a little bit odd to me you know that 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 you would have a system that is not consistent internally. It seems to me if God is doing something in the world, it's going to happen consistently. I think also there, and this is much more serious in my opinion, there's inconsistency within the triune God, according to the four-point Calvinist position on these things. And here's what I mean by it. If you've already confessed unconditional election, I might ask the question, who is it that has predestined people to salvation? You know, one way of saying it is God has, but maybe more particular we can say is God the Father, right,
0: yeah.
1: who who has predestined uh, some to salvation. And we might jump over to the irresistible grace portion of the thing, and we'll get there in, in this series eventually. But what that doctrine teaches is that the Holy Spirit is effective in drawing the elect to salvation in time, Right. So 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 far we have the Father, predetermining to save, and giving a certain people to the Son, and then you have the Holy Spirit who is, with precision, drawing the elect to salvation in time. But when it comes to the work of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, he's kind of rogue. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a harsh way to put it, but he he's off doing his own thing. You know, I've heard someone put it as. Uh, you end up with a warring trinity in four point Calvinism. Huh. Uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are out of sync, right? Um, to where the Son is accomplishing a work other than that which the Father sent Him to accomplish, and this, you know, and He atoned for sin, but the Spirit is only going to draw some of them. I think it is much better to see that in the Scriptures we're presented with this idea that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are perfectly in sync with one another as it pertains to everything, <laughs> as it pertains to everything, but for this conversation here, as it pertains to redemption. Okay, so John's gospel, right? We haven't gotten to it yet in our sermon series yet, but, um, and I'm not going to read it because I think we've gone long. Have we gone long? I don't know. We're doing pretty good. About the same as previous ones. So. I guess they're all long then. John <laughs> um, John 17. Okay, I won't read it in its entirety. Um, but but John seventeen, Jesus prays to the Father, right? And and what does he pray? He 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 says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So so he's, I mean, my goodness, he's praying this. Because his hour has come. What hour are we talking about here? It, it, track along with the Gospel of John. It's the hour of his death. And also in view here is the hour of his glory. Glorify your son. That's the resurrection and eventual ascension to the right hand of the father. Um, so he's praying to his father, and he says, glorify me, your, your son. Um, you have given me authority over all flesh. Second uh, Peter 2, by the way. Okay little tangent going back to that difficult verse it, 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 it pertains here um but but what authority does he have to, to give eternal life to all all whom you have given him okay um read the rest of john 17 read the whole gospel of john and see if jesus is not constantly making this point I, i've come to say what the father wants me to say i've come to do what the father wanted me to do i'm accomplishing the mission that he gave me there right, is just right. perfect harmony between Father and Son, between Jesus Christ, the God-man, and and God the Father. Mm. And I think in four-point Calvinism, what you have is the Son being out of sync with the Father. You, you have some internal consistencies, not only as a theological system, but also within the triune God. You have a warring trinity, to use those strong terms, uh, a trinity that is out of sync, um, and also I think there's a failure to recognize some very important principles as they are revealed in God's word that we've already gone over mm-hmm. concerning the particular nature of the redemption and the unity between father and son and Holy spirit. So, uh, yeah, th- that would be my critique. And I, brothers, if you're listening to this and you're one of my friends, who's a four point Calvinist, I, I do have friends that are four point Calvinists. Please don't take offense at it. It's just my honest critique of the, the system there maybe it's something we could talk about someday yeah that's good
0: well people uh, listening to this or just having this conversation wherever they are or whatever discussing limited atonement in general this question might come up is it possible to hold a limited view of the atonement and still offer the gospel freely
1: you know earlier you, you asked the question why are people so bothered about the limited atonement issue yeah, yeah. I was kind of holding back on my answer to that question because I knew this question was coming up at the end. (laughs) We do outline these things a bit, as you can tell. I think for some, when they hear the idea that Christ has died for the elect and not for all who have ever lived without exception, they say to themselves, well, then how in the world can we offer the gospel freely? How in the world can we go out on the streets, which I hope we're doing, by the way, right? (laughs) Insane. And how could we say to people, Jesus loves you and has died for your sins. Repent and believe. How can we offer the gospel freely to them if we don't believe that Christ has died for all? Here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you to see that we can still offer the gospel freely. But it is true that we might need to choose our words a little bit more wisely as we do that. Does that make sense what I just said? So here's how, here's how you say it. Here's how you offer the gospel freely without promoting false doctrine. You, you preach the gospel exactly the way the early church preached the gospel in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. Just go, go read the evangelistic sermons that, you, that, you, that are recorded there and, and try to find it. Try to find one instance where Peter stands up and says, Jesus loves you all, has a wonderful plan for your life, and he died for your sins. Every one of you individually, he's made a tone for your sins. You're not going to find it. Instead, what you're going to find is one instance after the next where what Peter does or Paul or whoever is preaching Stephen, they, they preach Christ from the scriptures. This is the Christ that was present in the Old Testament, you know, predicted from, he has come, the fullness of time has come, he's here, he has he has paid for sins, he has died for sins, repent and believe and have eternal life. I mean, that that's a real quick summary of it. Did you hear what I did there? It's a universal offer. I mean, how, how else are we going to go about this? Do, do the elect have a big red E on their forehead and we go up to them and just... You know, whisper in their ears saying, well, here's the gospel. I know you're the elect. No, the the only thing we could do is shout from the rooftops, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, And and we are to offer the gospel free. We don't have a clue who the elect are. Jesus has paid for sins. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Salvation is available in him and in none other. Stop trusting in anything else. Fall before Christ. Trust in him alone. Repent, believe, have eternal life in him. That, 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 that's universal. It, it's free. But the words are carefully chosen at the same time so that we don't miscommunicate the truth here. I, um, I, this, this, what I'm saying right now, irritates people like crazy. I know it does. But I, listen, go to the scriptures. Go to the scriptures and, and prove me wrong. Right. Show me where the gospel is preached in another way besides this. Um, it, it, it's a free offer of the gospel still because the truth of the matter is that for God so loved the world... That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's truth. God sent the son into the sinful world so that anyone believing in Christ will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's, that's gospel truth. It's free offer. And you know what? The Holy Spirit is going to use that message to draw sinners to repentance and repentance. Once they come to repentance, then we will know, you know, that they are the elect of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, the Apostle Paul. The, the let me close with these verses, okay? The Apostle Paul. Some consider him the greatest evangelist and, and missionary of all times, right? I mean, he, he, significant figure, obviously. Um, this is what we read um, concerning his missionary efforts, Acts thirteen forty eight, And when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Notice these are Gentiles who heard this, uh, uh, for God so loved the world, okay? They, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. They believed. And, and what are we told happened uh, in that particular place? And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We're given a glimpse here, I think, Paul walked into this place, preached the gospel to everyone who would give him the time of day. And what was the end result? It's that everyone appointed to eternal life believed. That's election. That, that's an insight into the, the wooing of the Holy Spirit at this moment in time. Free offer of the gospel. It's the elect that came as the Spirit moved within them. And then listen to how Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We're given an insight into Paul's mind here. He said, "Look at, I'll endure beatings and imprisonment and shipwreck. That's not in this text here, but you know, I'll endure it all for what? The sake of the elect, with the hope that as I preach this gospel consistently wherever I am, whenever I have opportunity, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's 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 what drives Paul. The elect." This principle of election. I'm going to preach the gospel in every place knowing that there are elect there and that God will use this free offer of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit um, to, to bring those elect to salvation. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, right? For it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Romans 1, um, right? Uh, so... Is it possible to hold a limited view of the atonement and still offer the gospel freely? If I was feeling sarcastic and snarky, I would say, "Well, Paul did." <laughs> I mean, that's that's my belief, though. Yeah, he believed these things. Yeah. He taught these things. These are his doctrines. These are the doctrines of Christ. These are the doctrines of the Holy Scripture. And and, and certainly, Paul offered the gospel freely uh, to everyone who would listen to his his word. And it's the elect who responded by faith, as the Holy Spirit chose to move upon their hearts.
0: Yeah. I think I think I've said this before, and. Another, that's probably one on total property, maybe the one on unconditional election, I remember, but it just keeps coming up to me because it's a, such a beautiful truth. You know, when we're we're talking about evangelizing and, and spreading the gospel and shouting on the rooftops, right? How much more freely are we going to be able to do that now with the idea that it's not by our convincing that others will come mm-hmm. to repentance? I mean, that's the beauty of it is that, yeah. you know, we are we are, yeah, we are going to by our choice, spread this, you know, this gospel, because mm-hmm. how could we not? And we're called to, and we're asked, you know, we're, uh, compelled to. Right. But yeah. it's not our work that causes ret-
1: repentance in hearts and change- changes hearts. And that's the beauty of this. It's- yeah. Yeah. I, I hate that stereotype that Calvinists don't care about evangelism or mission. I just hate it. It's not mm-hmm. true to history. Look at the history of missions, man. Calvinists have gone to some of the most difficult places and have persevered there in the proclamation of the gospel, you know, and, um, it, you know, if you're a part of Emmaus Christian fellowship and you're listening to this, I hope, I hope our people are listening to this, right? <laughs> We we've got to share the gospel, you know. Um, I know that we are. I, I know that it's happening. But we have to do it more, right? I, I yeah. mean, these doctrines are beautiful truths: tulip, uh, unconditional election, irresistible grace, the limited all. You know, they're, they're important. They're biblical. The scriptures reveal them to us. But what are we going to do? Believe these gospels and just sit back? These doctrines and sit back on our hands and, and withhold the gospel from people? No one's going to get saved. I mean, here's the, here's the flip side of the coin. No one's going to get saved if we don't preach the gospel, you know? Mm-hmm. And we want to see people come to salvation, and we want to see people discipled in Christ. We certainly do. If we don't, there's something deeply wrong with our hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, God is not going to bring the elect in in any other way. You know, can he? I suppose he's God, but His Word reveals that this is how He's going to do it. It's going to be through His church, through His people, as they shine as lights in the darkness, as they give a reason for the hope that are in them, that is in them, and as they use the gift of evangelism that God has perhaps given to them um, faithfully. So we need to share the gospel, and we need to we need to pray for for God to move. In this valley, you know, and into the ends of the earth, that the spirit of God would move in great power. Yeah. For further information on this,
0: uh, spreading the gospel, go ahead and check out our one of our previous episodes called uh, "What Is the Gospel and Who's Called to Preach It." Yeah, it's a good one yeah. to kind of go further in with that. So.
1: Yeah, it, you know, can I close this one out, Mike? You usually do, but um, if you're listening to this and you have questions, you can email them in to us, but also. Just, you you know, set up an appointment. Let's sit and talk. I think people are just so hesitant to, you know, broach the subject. They think it's going to be a debate and a fight. It doesn't have to be. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't want it to be. I don't intend it to be at all. I, I would love it very much so if you're wrestling through these doctrines, if you uh, if you would want to spend some time um, just conversing over these things, we can search the scriptures together. Uh, so, so that offers out there. You know, you can contact us. Uh, via email staff at emmauscf.org so org. staff at emmauscf.org send us an email um, and also can I encourage you uh, to uh, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes you might be listening to it just kind of streaming from our website and that's fine but you could subscribe to this podcast on iTunes you could also rate it and that would be um, that would be appreciated I think that would help kind of promote uh, promote this yeah so Um, but we do appreciate you listening in and and hope that you do come back uh, to listen to future episodes as we uh, progress through this series on Calvinism we're looking forward to it and we're hoping that it's an edifying thing for you that your love for God and your love for others uh, grows in the process until next time God bless Mm